Shalom. Thank you for listening to this week's message from Emmaus Road Fellowship, where we encounter Yeshua in the scriptures. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org, where you'll find additional teachings and information on visiting us in Kingwood, Texas. If you've been blessed by this ministry, please consider giving to support Emmaus Road's mission of spreading the good news of the kingdom. May God grant you shalom in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Bless God. Did anybody have anything during worship that you saw or wanted to share? As we were worshiping, I just had the overwhelming sense of the enormity and the eternal nature of the covenant that God has extended towards us. And that our hearts are drawn unto him. And we who are gathered here today give you glory, Father, because you have honored your covenant. You have given us Yeshua. And all who are gathered here kneel before you, O King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we stay firm in the faith and we stand for you, it will not be long before all creation is forced to kneel. But we who are gathered here this morning on your Shabbat, we are given the joy and the gladness of heart to gladly choose you now. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for that. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? So when we, earlier this morning, I was doing um, come in early to do prayers. And there was this one part of the prayers I was reading today is that, you know, and we kind of saw it in the songs today as well, too, is that, you know, when we call upon the name of the Lord, he is going to be there. And he's going to show up and everything. And I think sometimes it can get discouraging sometimes to feel like when we call upon the name of the Lord that he doesn't feel like he's showing up. He's not. But I think it's just the more the re-encouragement that he is there. It's maybe not the way that we see it. Maybe not the way we want it. But he is there as well, too. And I think he is moving as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the things that we're going to see this week as well, too. And maybe the discussion but I think it's just the re-encouragement of just, you know, continue to keep calling on the Lord. You know, keep there because he is faithful. He, is, he does not give up. He does not let us, you know, abandon us. He is a faithful God. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, I just thought of sharing that today. Amen. Amen. Thank you. It echoes what Chelsea said during worship about the long walks that she would take to go see Zeke, she and Josh, and not exactly knowing what the path was, but God was a comfort. Amen. Anyone else? So I have Zeke read the, um, the beginner's Bible to me during the morning for our Bible sessions. And um, this week, in the kids' version, it was talking about how they were they were freed from Egypt, and now Pharaoh's suddenly following them, and all the children are panicking, and they're like, why did you bring us out here to die? Moses, this is all your fault. And Moses' automatic response was, don't be afraid. Like, your God is going to protect you. Mm-hmm. And knowing that and walking in that, that's what I hope and pray for everyone today. Amen. So I, this... Uh the comments that we had here before service, I feel like they are right in line with what the overall message is today. Uh, the overall, or the, if I had a title, it would be, God will surely remember you. And we'll read about that here shortly, but this week is Shabbat Shira, uh, the Sabbath of song. And it's, it commemorates the singing of the song by the sea after the splitting of the sea and Miriam's song. And in Exodus 15, verses 1 through 2, we see the beginning of of it. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. So, Within this passage, 
this, the translation we have here says that the people, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. But there's an interesting construction in the Hebrew where it actually says, then Moses and the people of Israel will sing this song to the Lord. So they just come through the waters. They see the Egyptians dead on the, on the shore. And it makes sense if we're telling a story, we'd say, then they sang this song. But the Hebrew says, then they will sing this song to the Lord. And, of course, the sages took note of that being an interesting construction. And some commentary is that, well, um, you can express it in the future tense in order to give an expression of how it was so imminent in the moment, like reliving it. But another way of viewing it was the, was the view that this was, this was not the only time that they would sing of God's deliverance. They were singing of God's deliverance at this point, but there will be a time when they will again sing of God's deliverance. And the Midrashic uh, interpretation of that is that it's looking forward to the messianic era in the resurrection when they will again sing unto the Lord who has become their salvation and has brought them through all the difficulties, brought them through the waters out of death and into life. So it's a really cool picture. And then they sing, they say, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. And when we continue on in verse 2, in the literal translation is that I will praise him or I will glorify him. But there's an alternate translation where you can say, this is my God and I will build him a sanctuary. Because the root of the word that is used there for glorify or praise is also the word for home. And so I will make a home for him. And the idea is that, yes, there would be a day that would come where the children of Israel would build a sanctuary for God. But the key focus here is the idea that the individual would make themselves the sanctuary for God. He has become my salvation. He is my God. And I will make myself a habitation for him. And I will exalt him. I love the pictures of these ideas of we praise him now for the great deliverance, for the great deliverances that have happened and the great deliverances that are to come, all the while seeking to make ourselves a place for his dwelling presence. And it made me think of the song that we will sing in the days ahead. And one of those is Psalm 118 and the Song of Ascents, where these Scriptures were, were prayed at the temple. And Psalm 118 specifically, specifically has some passages that point to Yeshua being our resurrection or being the one who is our salvation. But here in Psalm 118, Beginning in verse 14, Adonai is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory are in the tents of the righteous. Adonai's right hand is mighty. Adonai's right hand is lifted high. Adonai's right hand is mighty. I will not die, but live and proclaim what Adonai has done. Adonai has chastened me hard, but has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and praise Adonai. This is the gate of Adonai. The righteous will enter through it. You know, here, the, the gate of Adonai. Last week, we talked about Yeshua being the door. This is the door, the gate of Adonai. And we will enter through the one who brings us salvation. I will give you thanks because you have answered me and you have become my salvation. Amen. So, with this week's portion... It covers a span of five to six weeks, all beginning with the Exodus and leading up to almost the time when the children of Israel enter into the wilderness of Sinai. And in this portion, we cover a lot of ground. We have the Exodus. We have the splitting of the sea, the song by the sea. We have the bitter waters that were made pure. We have the manna and the quail the Sabbath, water from the rock, and war with Amalek. There's a lot that takes place. It begins with a battle, and it ends with a battle, if that makes sense. I mean, granted, it begins with the journeys that then lead to 
Pharaoh pursuing the children of Israel to try to make war against them. And then it ends with war being made against the children of Israel again. And both times we see the victory coming through a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Okay, God brought a redemption to the children of Israel through the ten plagues, and he redeemed them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And then when the waters were split, Moses spread his arms holding his staff, and the waters split. And when the battle was going on with Amalek, Moses was standing on top of the mountain with his hands raised up. And by some accounts that he was holding his staff in his hands, and he had people on each side of him holding up his arms so that he could maintain his strength. Each time we see a picture of God's salvation through this outstretched arm. And in the latter one with the war with Amalek, when Moses is standing there with his staff raised up and a man on each side of him holding him up, there's another time that we see a person who is on, on the cross with his hand stretched out. You can see the crossbars being a picture of a staff flanked by men on each side. And Yeshua in his death, having a picture there of Moses interceding and giving victory over the enemy that seeks to come and destroy us. Right? So really neat picture again, just of God's salvation and his deliverance from every enemy, bringing it about in multiple ways through miracles and then through people joining with him to come and bring about a victory. We see images of Yeshua throughout this entire portion, not just here at the beginning and the splitting of the sea or at the end with Amalek, but we see pictures of him in the bitter waters that are turned sweet by the, by the tree thrown in it. We see pictures of him and the bread that came down from heaven to sustain life. Pictures of the rest that he brings in the Sabbath and also the water from the rock that brought forth spiritual waters to us. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4, Paul certainly doesn't miss out on this symbolism. He says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. Speaking of the time when they were walking, led by a cloud by day and fire by night, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Messiah. So each of these elements are pointing back to this week's portion, pointing back to the deliverance that we have through Yeshua, but then also his traveling with us in the journey on the way to a greater level of covenant and on the way to the promised land. Because he's with us throughout the entire trip. Now, when we get into the beginning of this week's portion, Pharaoh is sending the children of Israel out. Okay? It's not just that the children of Israel left Egypt. It's that Pharaoh sent them out. He said, get out. For, all, for we're all dying here. And he sends them out. Let's read it in Exodus 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go or sent the people out, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph, Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit or remember you. And you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And really this, this part right here where Joseph had told them, God will surely remember you. It's really where, we, where I kind of draw the idea of what this week's message is about. Because Joseph had died 139 years prior to this exodus. 139 years, but he had told them, God will surely remember you. He will surely visit you and he will bring you up out of this place. 
And when he does, take my bones with you back to the land. Okay? If you recall, Joseph's father had died in the land of Egypt and had made Joseph swear to him that he would take him up and bury him in, in the land. And Joseph was able to do so. But Joseph knew that upon his death, his brothers would not have the same favor with Pharaoh to be able to bring him up to the land at that time. But he said, my destiny is not here in the grave. My destiny is with you in the promised land. So take my bones with you. And an interesting thing about this is that the scripture says that he took his bones up with him. The word for the Hebrew word for bones is, uh, and now I'm, now I'm forgetting, it's azumot. I think it's azumot. I'll have to verify that. But the, the same word for bones is also essence. So your essence or your bones. So there's an aspect where they were bringing the bones of Joseph with them, but they were bringing the essence of Joseph with them with them as well. It's atimut. It's atimut, this bones, atimot is the essence. Actually, I said that backwards. Atimut is essence, atimot is the bones. Thank you. If I could read my notes, that would be very helpful. Perhaps I could use glasses, but. Um, <laughs> but anyway, the, so the thing is, they, they were going to bring his bones up. Now, the sages speak about what was taking place when the children of Israel were trying to get ready to leave, they were requesting items from the people of Egypt, taking the riches so they would take all the plunder with them when they left. But Moses was going about to seek, where are the bones of Joseph? And according to tradition, it was unknown where Joseph's bones were. And there's a couple of stories about what, what may have been done with them. The most common story about what took place was that the Egyptians had taken Joseph's bones and put them in a lead coffin and sunk it in the Nile River because they knew, well, a couple of theories here too. One was the aspect of you're not taking his bones with you if you ever try to leave. But the other more common one is the idea that they knew that blessing came through Joseph. And because the Nile was a place of great importance for their wealth, for their food. They put his bones in the Nile, hoping to seek, you know, receive blessing for that. So his bones were sunk in the Nile. And Moses was going to find out where, where are they? And according to tradition, there was a woman who had been alive. She had, she had been blessed with a very long life and had been alive at the time of his sinking and had told Moses where to find him. But given that this is a lead coffin at the bottom of a great river, how was Moses going to get the bones out? And so Moses stood and called out and said, Joseph, show yourself. And if you will, good. But if not, then we are, we are absolved of the oath to take your bones up with us. And nothing happened. And then he said, arise, ox. Okay, and, and Joseph is spoken of in Scripture as being an ox. And at that, when he said, arise, then the, co the coffin floated to the, the surface of the waters. And Moses was able to take the bones with him. So it's an interesting story, right? But he calls out to him, arise. And out of the depths, out of the death, up come his bones. And his bones are taken out of the grave and carried with the children of Israel on their journey through the uh, wilderness, on their way to the promised land. And so with this, whether his bones were in the river or whether they were in a tomb, as one other story speaks, Joseph's bones were taken out of the tomb and carried with the children of Israel in an ark on their journey. And the empty tomb served as a sign of their deliverance out of Egypt. It's a really neat picture, right? Because we know that an empty grave served as a sign of Yeshua's resurrection, where he arose from death 
and was a sign of our deliverance out of sin and slavery, out of sin and slavery and being subject to death. And then in their whole 40 years of journeying, they had to carry the bones with them. So Joseph's essence was with the children of Israel all along their journeys. It was not a primary focus necessarily, but he was always with them. And according to tradition, the ark with his bones was carried alongside the ark of the covenant. Okay? And the Talmud tells us a story of this. And it says, when they were going through the desert, the nations would inquire of Israel and say, what are these two arks? And the Israelites would reply, this one is the ark of the one who died, and the other is the ark of the living one of the world. And they would say, is it customary to carry the ark of a dead person alongside the ark of the eternal living one? And the Israelites would respond and say, the deceased lying within this ark fulfilled all that is written in the other ark. <laughs> That's a wonderful picture again here, right, of Yeshua, who fulfilled everything written in the Torah that would apply to him. And that he, being the one who fulfilled what is written in the Torah and has been raised up out of death, would be the one to walk alongside the Ark of the Covenant be the one who would travel with the children of Israel through all their journeys. His essence and presence always being with them, even though they wouldn't necessarily see him, but he was always there, always with them. And this, this mentioning of Joseph's bones being brought up and accompanying the children of Israel comes right after the story of the Passover that we read of last week and right after God's command to sanctify the firstborn, right? God had sanctified his firstborn, raised him up, and was sending him with his children on their journeys. He's with us on our journeys. The silent member at every meal, right? Always with us. Not seen, but present. And so the children of Israel journey forth and they begin to head out. God didn't take them by the most direct route into the land of, of Israel, but he led them by a different path for their own good. So he led them to Sukkot and then to Etham, and then he had them turn back and encamp near Pi Haharoth, across from Baal Zephon. And in doing so, it looked as though they were trapped, okay? It looked as though the wilderness had hemmed them in, is what the Scripture says. And so word came to Pharaoh that the children of Israel had no intention of returning. And so Pharaoh had a change of heart, and God strengthened Pharaoh so that Pharaoh would pursue his desire, which was to go and to re-enslave the children of Israel. So he got all of his, uh, he got his chariots and his people together to go out and pursue the children of Israel. And in Exodus 14, verse 9, the scripture says, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea. By, by Pai Haharoth in front of Baal Zephon. Now, a comment on this. Pai Haharoth is, literally means the mouth of freedom. The mouth of the freedom. So God was taking the children of Israel out. He says, turn back, camp near this place. It's going to look like you cannot escape, but this place is the mouth of your freedom. It looks like the place of your destruction, but it's the mouth of the freedom that I have for you. And then even its positioning next to this Baal Zephon was an encouragement to Pharaoh. Because Baal Zephon was the Lord of the north, and he was understood to be the God of the sea and the storm. 
And so if this God still stands after all these ten plagues have come, and the children of Israel have been hemmed in by the wilderness, and they are pinned down across from this God of the sea, then perhaps Pharaoh's God is greater. And so Pharaoh says, I will go, I will pursue, and I will overtake, because now we see their weakness. But God was just setting a scene for a great deliverance and one more demonstration of his sovereignty and and seeking to bring about the completion of his deliverance of the children from Egypt. For while Egypt still had power and might, they still had the ability to pursue and overtake the children of Israel and re-enslave them. Right? The victory had come in the Passover and the ten plagues, and the Exodus was beginning, but there was still another battle to be had, another victory to be won. And that's really a picture even of our life that we live now, a restored life through the death and resurrection of Yeshua, but we still walk with weaknesses of the flesh. We still walk in a world where death has not been fully defeated, but it will be. And there's a great victory that's to come. And this victory that's taking place with the splitting of the sea happens as we're going into the seventh day of Passover. So I mentioned that primarily because at the time when Pharaoh encounters the children of Israel there at the sea, that is on the sixth day, and the, the cloud and the fire move in between Pharaoh and the children of Israel, and Moses spreads out his arms and the waters part, and the children of Israel begin to go through on dry land that evening, which is the beginning of the seventh day of Passover. And it's at dawn when they arrive at the other side of the waters, okay? Interestingly, if we look at it symbolically, and we look at a victory that's going to come, we know the expectation is that the six days of creation represent 6,000 years of mankind, and the seventh day of creation, the Sabbath, the day of rest, represents the seventh millennium, the messianic era, right? And at the end of the sixth millennia comes a great battle and a great victory that is brought by the Lord that ushers in the messianic era. And it's a, it's a wonderful deliverance and actually ushers in the first resurrection, right? So even here at the splitting of the sea, we're seeing a picture of the battle that's to come and the deliverance that will come in the day ahead, again, where we will sing unto the Lord for his glorious triumphing over those who would seek to destroy us. But okay, so, so God's bringing a salvation. So they are encamped here, they're being pursued, and picking back up in verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent." So, you know, the, the, the children of Israel had every reason to fear in that moment, if you look at it purely from a phys physical aspect. Here it is, they have no escape. Their backs are to the sea. Pharaoh's entire army is coming at them. And they cry out. And Moses tells them, stand fast and see the salvation of God. Today, you're going to experience his deliverance. And then picking up in verse 15, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward 
Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Okay, so right here, the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now he says to go forward before he says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And so the sages looked at this and there's a, there's a story that is told in tradition about what took place after God said, go forward. The children of Israel knew that he had said, go forward. But the only going forward was either into the Egyptians, which actually couldn't happen because you had the pillar of cloud and the fire separating them, or to go into the water. And the majority of them were like, I can't go into the water. The water is not a path forward. But there was one son who was a prince of Judah who has the name Nachshon who upon hearing the word to go forward and seeing the children of Israel hesitating, plunged into the waters. He himself went forward into the waters. And when he did, he began to, to sink and to struggle in the waves. But he had put himself out there he had sacrificed himself for the people of Israel. And it's at that point that God says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it to Moses. Such that Moses then stretched out his staff, spread his hands and divided the waters and made a way for the children of Israel to go through. And within the telling of the sages, it was the courage and the selflessness of Nachshon, who was willing to sacrifice himself for the people that brought about the splitting of the sea. It was in his merit that the waters were split and the children of Israel went through on dry ground. Once again, being a picture of the Messiah who would offer himself up, have courage and strength to throw himself sacrificially so that not just the children of Israel, but those of the, every nation could be saved and have a way through the waters into life. And the commentary around the story of Nachshon, it's a, there's a remembrance of his courage and his bravery. But we look through his life and who his descendants were. King David was one of his descendants. And the Jewish expectation was that Messiah would be a descendant of Nachshon. And when we read in the lineage of Yeshua in the New Testament, we see the Nachshon is there in his lineage. Nachshon down to David, down to Yeshua, the Messiah. It's such a cool picture, right? All these images carried through in these portions, all pointing to the coming Savior. All at this great juncture of deliverance that God was bringing through the season of Passover, through the Passover lamb, through the splitting of the sea, and bringing life and complete deliverance for his people. And what it was is that God was making a way where there was no way. Right? The waters are not a place for man to live, right? That's part of the aspect of creation, right? If you look back at the very beginning, waters covered the surface of the deep. The Spirit of God hovered over it. And God said, let there be light. And then he split the waters, right? The waters above and the waters below. And then he split the waters again to where dry land came about. And having dry land made a place 
for people and animals to be able to live. And in Isaiah 43, 1 through 3, we again see this picture of God saying, I'm going to make a way where there's no way. He did it in creation. He did it here at the splitting of the sea. He does it over and over again. But in Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. He says, I'm the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, and I'm going to be with you through everything that you go through. And I will bring you through it because you're mine, right? He's faithful to remember and to keep his promises and bring about the deliverance through the waters. And you know, when I mentioned the aspect of creation and the waters being split, there's an interesting commentary in the, in the Talmud that speaks about the crossing at the sea. And they say that there were fruit trees in the midst of the sea as the children were passing through. And that mothers, if they had their children who were crying because they were hungry, they would pick pomegranates and apples from the trees as they passed through the waters on their way across. It sounds kind of outlandish, doesn't it? That here's a river or a sea that's been split and God's caused dry land, dry land and now there's fruit trees growing in it. Well, you don't necessarily have to believe that there are fruit trees in the sea. I don't necessarily believe there are fruit trees in the sea. But the commentary that we read in the Talmud and the Midrash is not always to try to say, hey, here's what literally happened. But in order to plant a seed and say, hey, there's something else going on here that you need to be looking for. But they often don't just come right out and say what it is that they're hinting at because they want you to explore and to have the revelation such that it comes to you, something that you can take hold of, right? And so they said, what? so why would the sages say that there were fruit trees in the midst of the sea? And so this is part of the association with what was going on in creation, all right? The children of Israel are standing at the sea and all they see are waters, deep waters. And God causes an east wind to blow all through the night over the surface of the waters. So here you have the breath of God over the surface of the waters, just as in creation. The pillar of cloud and fire go and they separate between Egypt and the children of Israel. On one side you have darkness, on the other side you have light. You have a division between light and darkness in this, in this story. You have a place where now the water, the wind blowing over the waters is dividing the water. The water's being split. And it splits it to the point that now there's dry ground that is showing up. So we're going through each progression of the days of creation. And now you have cattle and you have people passing through the dry ground in the midst of it. So you're kind of running into days, into day six. Well, what else are you missing now? You're missing the herbage. You're missing the trees, the fruit-bearing trees that are also there. So it wasn't necessarily that they were there physically, but the sages were saying, there's something else going on in this story that you might miss if you just read through it casually. So I'm going to throw this out there and make you say, why on earth would you talk about trees being in the midst? Because they're saying God is making a new creation even in this. God made a creation where he could make place man. God brought floodwaters in the days of Noah. And through the floodwaters, he provided a way of escape for Noah. 
and his family, but he brought destruction to all who wouldn't call on his name. And he brought the Noah through in an ark, through a teva, is what the scripture calls it. But in the midst of that flood, in the midst of the waters, it, would, it was death to the enemies of God. It was life preserved for those who do call on God. When Moses was born, he was cast into the waters that, would have, that were intended for death for all the Jewish boys, right? But he was preserved in a teva. In this body of water that was covered with reeds. And now the children of Israel are being brought through a body of water in a new creation. A body of water called the Sea of Reeds, which harkens back to Moses' preservation. Because God was bringing forth a people that would be his. And this, what was taking place there at the sea was destruction for those who were against God, and it was life to those who were the people of God. You have the same story repeated, and you see a a preservation through the waters in each of these stories. Life that comes forth out of it. And even earlier when we were talking about Joseph and his bones being brought up out of the waters, right? Resurrection coming up out of these waters. Really, God just repeating over and over this idea of creation and life through these things. And in this week's gospel portion that we read in Matthew 14, we see another allusion to this story and what's taking place. So if we look at Matthew 14, starting in verse 22, Yeshua made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side of the sea while he dismissed crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, this is after 3 a.m., like between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. All right, so I mean, this is late in the night, almost morning. He came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Yeshua spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Yeshua. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Yeshua immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So here you have this body of water in this storm taking place where the disciples are sure to die. Okay, death is encompassing them. But Yeshua, who is Messiah, is walking on the surface of the waters just as the spirit of Messiah hovered over the waters in creation. And he comes to them and tells Peter, go forward. And Peter steps out on the water with Yeshua. And as long as he was keeping his eyes fixed on Yeshua, the wind and the waves didn't matter because Yeshua was salvation to him. But when he took his eyes off Yeshua, he began to sink because the water is no place for man to live. But in his distress, he cried out and Yeshua reached out his arm. And again, by his outstretched arm, brought deliverance to Peter and pulled him out and brought him safely to the shore. So Yeshua was salvation to him in the midst of this. Another picture of the salvation that God can bring, even when it seems like there's no way. And their response was one of faith and trust in him as as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And they worshipped him. 
And when the children of Israel had come through the waters, they'd passed through and they came to the other side of the, of the Sea of Reeds. Back in Exodus 14, verse 29. They went on dry ground in the midst of the sea, and the water was a wall for them on their right and on their left. And the Lord, thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so that the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now here when they were speaking of this, the scripture says at this time they believed in God and they believed in Moses, his servant. Now, this wasn't the first time that they believed in God or believed in Moses. They had come to a new level of belief in God and belief in Moses at this time. Because through all the play, well, when Moses first came to them back and said, God has remembered you and he's going to bring you out of this slavery, they believed. They're like, yes, we believe God's going to bring us out. So they believed the word that Moses was speaking and they believed in God's ability to bring them out. And then through the 10 plagues, they saw his might and his power displayed. So it wasn't like they had just now come to faith. They had come to a new level of faith and trust in him because they had seen and experienced this great deliverance, bringing them out of Egypt and then bringing them through the waters and having the waters be life for them, but death to those who opposed God. Right? So they believed in God and they believed in Moses. So too, the disciples already believed that Yeshua was a great man of God and they already believed in God. But now, having seen him walk on the waters and bring them safely through the storm, they worshipped him and said, truly you are the Son of God. They had gone to a new level of faith and trust in him. And so believing in Moses is very similar to the idea or the concept that we have of believing in God as he has been revealed by Moses and believing in God as he has been revealed in Yeshua. Right? So back in John 14, 1 through 3, Yeshua said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Right? And he talks about how he's going to come back and take us to himself. And then in John 12, 44, Yeshua cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. He's saying, I am revealing God's salvation. I'm revealing the one who is your salvation, and I'm re revealing the one who has sent me. So you're believing in God through me, and our faith in God is strengthened because of who we have seen Yeshua to be and God revealed in him. Now, in this journey... In this journey that the children of Israel are going on, we've, we haven't made it very far into the portion, right? We've only gone through the first couple chapters. There's so much more that takes place. And what we're going to see from this, okay, we have the song by the sea. We have the children of Israel rejoicing in the great salvation of God. And that's in, that's in chapter 15. But then also in chapter 15 is really a, a test that the children of Israel are facing. So they've, they've come through the sea, they've seen God's deliverance, they've sung a song unto him. But now in Exodus 15, verse 22, they begin to travel forward. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. 
saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So here the children of Israel had traveled three days in the wilderness without water. And now they came to a place where there was water, but they couldn't drink it. And you know, the longest you can really go without water, generally speaking, is about three days. And you know, if you recall on Yom Kippur and on the ninth of Av when we fast and we don't eat food or drink water, when the end of that day comes and you drink, you know, you're not thinking about, well, you probably may be thinking about food, but mostly you're thinking about having a glass of water. That's the first thing you're going for when you break the fast. And now imagine going three days in the desert, not having fresh water. The children of Israel could be very right to say what is happening and we're all going to die here. And now we see water, but we can't drink it. That's the ultimate disappointment. Right? So they're crying out, and God brings them to this place, again, really for their benefit. He took them the long way coming out of Egypt, not the straight way to the land of Israel, because he said it would be a benefit for them. And even here, I think the lack of water was for their benefit, because he was bringing them to a point of testing where he could demonstrate to them that he is their provider, once again doing something that falls outside of the realm of reason, saying, I know your needs, and I'm going to remember my covenant to you and my promises to you and bring you forth in faithfulness. And here you're going to take a tree and throw it in the water, and it's going to be made pure. The sages say that this was a bitter tree. So a bitter tree thrown into bitter waters that made them sweet. Contrary to the idea that you would take something sweet and add it to something bitter to counteract it. And then even this is an allusion to the idea that the very cross that was thrown into the waters that made our lives, made life for us was a bitter cross, right? But it's what brought life. So God brought salvation increasing the trust of the people. Now they journeyed on from there to a place of 12 springs of water. The sages say that the 12 springs of water were only a half a mile from the bitter waters of Mara. It wasn't far, right? But they couldn't see it. They still needed God to move and act and bring a salvation. But then from that place, he brought them to great abundance, great provision with the, with the fresh springs and the date palms. But God was bringing and training the children of Israel to trust in him, and he continued to do that as he led them, giving them quail in the evening and manna in the morning, giving them Shabbat as a day of rest, right? Pharaoh caused you to work. I'm giving you rest. I'm bringing you to a new place of provision. You're going to eat of this manna, this bread from heaven for the 40 years while you travel. And then he says they come to a place where they again need water, and he brings forth water from the rock. And that rock followed them through all their journeys in the wilderness to provide water for them. God's saying, I'm going to provide for your physical needs and your spiritual needs. He provided their physical need of manna, their physical need of water. And Paul says that he provided not just that physical need, but they were spiritual provision as well. The spiritual provision of the manna, spiritual provision of the water all through Messiah, who was with them through all their journeys. And in the midst of all of this, right, God was training a people who would walk with him, who would trust in him, and then take action according to that trust. We saw it with Nachshon. We see it with Moses. We see it... Um, which is the faithfulness even of the children to, to begin to walk in God's commands and to say that they will accept his Torah and walk with him. In this week's uh, Haftarah, there's the reading of 
uh, Deborah, the prophetess, and Balak, who went and fought um, to bring a great victory for Israel. And in this, in that story, you have Jael, who killed the king. I can't remember his name now, but uh, but anyway, he killed. She killed the king who was fleeing from the children of Israel. And she did that by faith, right? Taking action to help bring about a deliverance and fulfill the word that Deborah gave, saying that the ultimate victory in this battle will come from a woman that uh, Barak would not take. Or was it Balak? My, anyway, one of the two would not take the victory, but it was, it was going to be from a woman, and here it was, through Jael acting. And the other one that really stood out to me of another picture of God's deliverance is through King David. Of course, he wasn't king at the time, but it's in the battle that he went up against Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And we won't read the whole, the whole passage here. But David had been Saul's armor bearer. He had been uh, the one who would play music for Saul. He had been a shepherd in the field. He had delivered the flock from those which had sought, sought to destroy his flock. And now you have the Philistines at war with the children of Israel. And Goliath, the great giant and champion of the Philistines is out taunting the children of Israel. And, and David says, I'll go up and fight him. And so in first, first Samuel 17, verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Okay, so... Um, the Philistine said, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. But David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, even though there was no sword in the hand of David, right? Because God had equipped David with all that he would need for the battle. The primary thing that he had equipped David with was the faith and the knowledge of who God is and that God is the deliverer and the battle belongs to the Lord. Now, was David's training important as well? Absolutely. That came in and played a part of the deliverance that God was going to bring. But he was looking, God was looking for someone who would say, I'm going to go forward. I'm going to put myself in this place of trust, in the place even of danger, knowing that God is my salvation 
and that God will move as my deliverer. And what he saw was a great victory that God brought. Now, even in, that, in, even in the middle of what was going on, in a, in a way, David was standing firm and seeing the salvation of God, right? The stand, stand firm and see the salvation of God is not necessarily just a, a sit complacent. It's a stand with firm faith and see the salvation of God. So just as Nachshon, just as Jael, just as David, all had faith to go forward and to take action, trusting in God as the great deliverer, so too may we go forward trusting that God will surely remember us, that God will surely fight for us, that he will bring forward his deliverance. And then we will sing a song unto the Lord because we've made a sanctuary for God. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word and your truth. And we thank you, Lord, that you move on our behalf. Lord, we ask you to give us eyes to see what we're to do, where we're to go. May you lead us and guide us, Lord. Help us to trust in you and to go forward. Lord, we give you praise and thanks in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this message, please consider sharing it with a friend or family member and help us out by giving a review on iTunes or other podcast platform. Check out our website at walkingemmausroad.org for additional teachings and information about visiting Emmaus Road in Kingwood, Texas. Thank you.